Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey guys, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. I am so stoked to drop this podcast because uh, I know a lot of people wonder about, okay, How's your elk hunting season go? And this is just a great place for me to let everybody know how it went and just kind of be real straightforward on, well, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, Elk hunting for 30 days is super awesome. It's also has a handful of challenges just personally with family and little kids at home and logistics and just you know, being gone in the mountains that long. Uh, I don't know if I recommend it, honestly, for you blue collar elk hunters out there, there's something to be said about going, you know, for two or three days at a time, really hard, and then not burning all your vacation. Uh, I do think hunting during the weekday is way more important than hunting on the weekends. But I think a lot of you already know that. But uh, yeah, charging hard for three, four days, and then come back. Uh, if you can do that, I was hunting places that are just too far for that. And it's just kind of a big, long road trip. So we're going to get into that. Um, I recorded this podcast while driving home from the 30 days of elk hunting. And so it's a little bit of a highway type background noise. Apologize for that. I swear a little bit on this one. I think it's just because uh, being in elk camp for 30 days, you start cussing a little bit more. I noticed that when I was editing, I was like, oh, wow. So my apologies. Um, I, I still love Jesus, but I do use colorful language sometimes. Um, I'm not perfect. I've definitely been audited by the IRS. Uh, I've been pulled over for drinking and driving when I was 21. Um, I've done dumb stuff in my life. So uh, yeah, I'm superhuman. I'm really good at being human. So I apologize. Uh, there's 
nothing too bad on there. But yeah, just recap my elk season. I hope you guys had the best elk hunting season. We're going to get into this and then uh, we will go through um, some of the discount codes at the end because I've got a lot of messages about people saving a lot of money. So I better read those out. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Vortex Optics because these guys are my main basically partner. They're the guys that really see the value in Elk Shape, Elk Shape Camps, Elk Shape Podcast, our YouTube, our platforms. Thank you, Vortex. Uh, they do have a discount code, 20% off their apparel. Use the discount code ElkShape, uh, hashtag fit for anywhere. They have a bunch of new apparel that you can kind of have, I would call crossover apparel, where you could wear it to work out. You can wear it to go on a date, or you can wear it in the mountains, no joke, which I did this year. Everything from socks, hoodies, lightweight hoodies, uh, performance t-shirts, all that kind of stuff. Stuff for when you're shooting at the range, all that. So thank you, Vortex. I appreciate you guys. Um, I use the Razer UHDs. I use the Razer 4000 rangefinder and the Razer 65 millimeter. Those are the three pieces of optics that I use the most. Let's get into the podcast. I'll catch you at the end. Hope you're having a best day ever. Here we go. What up, guys? Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. Background noise is uh, tires on a highway. Driving home after a 30-day elk hunting extravaganza. Figured this would be a, the, my best chance to kind of catch you guys up to speed on the elk season. I do want to say I hope you guys all experienced a great, successful hunting season. Whether or not you tagged out, that's that shouldn't define your success. Did you get better? Did you work hard towards a goal? And did you evolve your game? So I'm going to try to break down the the whole deal and, and try to remember as much as I can and uh, be very transparent. Here we go. I uh, left my house August 28th. I made it to camp that night in Idaho in a brand new area to me. I've never elk hunted these units, this zone. Different terrain, more open, southeast Idaho. That's as much detail as I can give you, although I will say the hunting pressure out the gates was insane. Every truck, trail, had horses, four-wheelers, camps, etc. So I think that's par for the course. Elk hunting's cool. That doesn't bother me. Rolled in on the 28th, got a little bit of an evening scouting session in, checked a couple cameras. I found an area about 30 miles south of my spike camp where bulls were summering and they still were in there. And I pulled up a couple of bulls just glassing. Uh, this place was super friendly to glass. So my glass was UHD 10 by 42 that's made by Vortex. Uh, people have asked me before, that is some of the best glass on the market with the VIP warranty. And then I used the, uh, basically a 65 millimeter razor spotting scope angled and I use a outdoorsman tripod. It's aluminum, but it's light. It's the, it's the mini one and lots of phone scope footage. And, uh, on the 29th, the day before the opener, I rode my dirt bike up a couple of dirt bike trails did some scouting there. I have a funny story. It was a Saturday. I rode my dirt bike up this really nasty dirt bike trail and it's open to dirt bikes. I had a motor use vehicle map and 
I could tell somebody had put a gone out of their way to really put a bunch of rocks and boulders in the middle of the trail. Uh, but I was able to get my little TTR 250 up and around a lot of it. Very technical single track. I wore a helmet, no bow, and I made it to the end of the trail. It was about a four-mile ride, and this guy jumps out of the bushes, waving his arms, yelling at me, saying, hey, hey, motorcycles aren't allowed up here. And I was cool, and I just said, uh, yeah, they are. I got a motor use vehicle map. They're open here for sure until September 7th. And he's like, well, why are you? He's like, can you please whisper? There's elk right above you right now. And he had a bow in his hand, and I said, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, are you hunting right now? And he's like, and he's all face painted up and camo, and he's got a southern accent. And he said, yeah, uh, it's opening day of elk season here in Idaho. And I said, oh. No, it's not, bro. I said, you need a motor use vehicle map and you need the regs. It doesn't open till the 30th. And he's like, no, no, what day is it? I said, it's the 29th. And he's like, no, what day of the week? I said, it's Saturday. He's like, no, Idaho opens the last day, the last Saturday of the month. And I said, bro, not only are you wrong, you're dead wrong. You're illegally elk hunting right now. And he just like got the look on his face like, oh, shit. And he just like literally started backing up and he just disappeared back into the trees. And I was laughing. Uh, he's from Kentucky. His truck was parked at the trailhead. He had packed a camp in there. Um, I just laughed. And uh, I spent the rest of the day just scouting and glassing. In the evening, I went up to my lookout. There was six other guys spread out on the, on the, footing, uh, the, the foothills. And they were all glassing, and I was like, man, this is not a good spot. There's too many guys in here. Went to bed that night, woke up for opening day, August 30th. I had a cameraman show up, Jake Webb. And so we went into a brand new spot. We've, we kind of found this road that was a five-mile four-wheeler ride, but you could side hill three miles, and you could be into backcountry where – all these other guys were coming in two different trailheads that met at the saddle. Well, we just side-heeled to the saddle, and we got Elk to Bugle opening day. And we basically watched them go into timber where they bedded. We snuck in, waited for the thermals to change, and we were working this herd bull. And we ended up calling in, I think, a 4x4 four four and a 5x5, five five, which I passed. We got good footage of the 4x4. Four and uh, that was it for that day. And then August 31st, we tried this desert section where there's no water. And we got into elk immediately. And we chased bugles and followed them into their herd. And I'm not going to remember every day for 30 days straight. So I'm going to try to hit some highlights. On September 1st, we were watching this one pivot down in the valley floor. And I had trail cameras spread out three miles from the pivot. And I had this herd of about a hundred pegged. I knew where they bedded from the pivot. So we got above the pivot in the dark, about three miles off where I got the spotter set up. And we watched this truck drive the backside of this pivot and drop off possibly six different hunters all along the, uh, the fence edge where these elk had holes in the, in the fence to get into the pivot. And there's an elk fence on this pivot, but the elk have made holes. And these guys had ground blinds on the inside of the pivot on the private, which was access, yes, so you could hunt. 
anyone could, as long as you signed in. And these guys dropped off six hunters, six ground blinds, and then the trucks drove around to the north end of the pivot, and there was probably five or six trucks parked on the north end. And as it got light, I could tell that there was at least 100 head of elk kind of all bunched up in the middle of the pivot. They knew they were kind of trapped because they saw the guys get dropped off. And so these elk refused to go out the way they came in. And this went on for probably two or three hours where these guys kind of got impatient. And I think they had cell phone service. And so they were getting the guys in the trucks to drive towards the elk on the edge of fence anytime the elk would try to exit to the north. And eventually it got worse where these guys jumped out of their trucks and started running at the elk and trying to drive the elk towards the ground blinds. Long story short, I filmed the whole thing. These guys were using vehicles to push elk, jumping out of vehicles, running into the middle of these elk herds big herd this herd split up into like three big groups they never ran by the ground blinds the guys eventually got out of the ground blinds and tried to sneak along the edge of the fence towards the elk it was just it was like the worst thing i've ever seen and if these guys would have just these elk could have just got out they would have came over to us because we had the trails pegged on where they bedded but they never did they eventually exited by the trucks on the north end where there isn't an elk fence And they ran straight out into the desert and just probably, like I said, three or four groups of elk. And it was just, uh, I don't know. I'm probably going to type up something and put it all on, put all the footage on a card and send it to Fishing Game. And and I got pictures of every guy's license plate, but it was not hunting at all. It was terrible. And it ruined that, that whole setup. And so that was one of the lowlights of the beginning of the season. But as the season progressed here in Idaho, we eventually got some really good weather, some high winds and some snow that stuck to the ground. I found a 360 bull and it was like, man, hunting him was really hard because he was in an area where there was no cows and uh, we got on him three different times and could not get a shot. We were not calling. We were trying to sneak in and intercept we eventually found this bull one morning. This is the last time I saw him. He and two other rag bulls were chasing this one cow around all morning. And they slipped into this timbered saddle and we knew there was only one way out. So we covered the exit and we waited maybe 20 minutes and they never came through. So we snuck into the timber. And I'm just going to tell you the fast version of the story I got into the timber and I saw the cow laying there dead and her calf was bedded right next to her alive and the big 360 bull slipped out of there and when we walked up to the cow she was she'd been dead for 20 minutes she threw up all over the place I think they ran her ragged to pure exhaustion she was in heat uh her lady parts were wide open and she, her calf just didn't know what to do. And her calf was pretty small. So I was surprised that she was in heat that early. But the, the bulls ran her to the ground. She had no wounds on her. Her eyes were open. Like I said, there was vomit everywhere. She'd been eating in an alfalfa pivot. And uh, 
we didn't know what to do. We didn't have cell service to call fishing game and tell them, Hey, what do you want us to do? Um, so we just walked away, but it was kind of just, I'm telling you this, that nature's cruel. Like this cow died because these bulls chased her to death. <clears throat> At one point I saw her find the only tree in the sage flat and she put her butt up against the tree to try to catch her breath and, and keep the bulls off of her. But they, they ran her into the ground and she was dead and that poor calf didn't have a mom. And that was the only female elk in the area. And the big 360 bull must have just took off back out the way he came. So that was just a couple of days of weird, weird stuff. Uh, but eventually we got into elk in Idaho, but we, we weren't digging the hunting pressure. So September 5th was opened up for Montana. We jammed over to Montana, which was quite a drive from where we were at. And we hunted Montana for five days. And it was some of the best elk hunting I've experienced. I almost killed a 336 point. I was bubble hunting, as I call it, where I was just not calling. And the bulls were bugling really good. And we just, Jake and I split up at that point. And I had probably five or six really good encounters where I came to full draw on at least three different bulls and just couldn't get shots. Phenomenal. But we kind of pounded this one spot so hard the next five days that we kind of boogered the elk a little bit they stopped bugling as much and they started spreading out further and bedding further and uh, it was a hard place to hunt it was a five mile hike to get to the elk and it was a five mile hike to get back to base camp uh, we did not spike in there so we were doing 15 mile days no joke every day so we kind of wore ourselves out for those five day stretch um, but phenomenal elk hunting especially for early the elk were running hard. It was phenomenal. I got uh, bulls fighting for like two minutes, like going at it, like to the death. I got busted by a cow sneaking in on that fight. Uh, that 330 bull was super wide. One of the widest bulls I've ever seen. His beams were over 40, 45. I think he might have been close to 50-inch beams. Uh, he, he, he didn't have anything super weak on him. He was real solid. And he had about 10 cows, and there was another bull who had about 30. He was probably a 330 bull. Uh, so just some really big Montana giants and uh, phenomenal elk sign. I want to go back to that spot, but um, we pulled out of Montana, drove all the way back to Idaho, and I started studying maps because of the hunting pressure, and I figured out where the elk were going. I said, all right, man, there's trailhead here, trailhead here, roads here, feed here. So I kind of knew where they got food. I knew where they got water. And I figured out where they were going to bed based on maps. And I was like, they have to be going into one of these three canyons. They're very terrible to get to. They're probably going five or six miles from their food source. This is the hardest place to get to. So I hiked in the dark, the five miles, and I got into the canyon, and I hadn't even heard a bugle, and I glassed a mega giant bull and cows come over the top of this skylighted ridge and drop into these canyons, and I was like, oh yeah, they're going in here. And I was in a bowl, and I was just past the saddle getting my, uh, just take eating a snack. It was probably eight in the morning and I hear a bugle super close. 
I look to my right, and this nice 306-point solo goes through the saddle that I had just walked, and he was trotting on a mission, and he headed straight into this nasty canyon. And I was like, all right, that's two big bulls heading to this canyon. I'm going. I got into the canyon, and there really wasn't much elk sign down low, but the wind was just super steady. This canyon doesn't get sunlight. Thermals are jamming down. By that time, it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I let out a locator, and I got four different bulls to answer. And so I was like, game on. Now, these elk weren't talking on their own, which is my preference. I really don't call that much. Once I got them located, I just got the wind and went uphill in this dark, open timber, and I spotted at least four bulls, three spikes, no cows, and they were all milling around at 10 o'clock in the morning. And this timber's big where I could see out to almost 100 yards. And I saw them. I ranged them all. They were 80 yards. And they were spread out. So I started cow calling a little bit. And I had seen a deadhead six-point hiking in. But I, was, I just dropped a pin on base map. I was like, I'll pick it up later. And I tried calling these bulls in. But because they could see where I was standing behind a tree, they didn't see what they liked, so they just held their ground. We And this went on for 30 minutes to the point where I finally just got the tree between me and them. It was a big old tree. And I backed out, went down to the deadhead, picked up this six-point deadhead. It was a nice bull. And I side-hilled and went up the mountain and got on their level. And then I side-hilled over about 50 yards Got the deadhead sticking out behind a tree looking like a bedded bull. And I started cow calling and doing a, a, a light squealy bugle. And I kid you not, all these elk started side hilling to me. And I had this big 5x5 five five at 54, but I couldn't get a shot through the, through the tree brush. And this small six point was coming in closer. And he got to about 50, and I couldn't get a shot. And I noticed he was starting to arc to get my wind below me because the thermals were still going down. And I was like, Dan, you better you better put an arrow through him before he gets your wind. So once he got to 45, I cow called and stopped him. It was a quartering two shot, my least favorite shot. So I pulled back, and I spent a lot of time aiming super small and got a awesome break and drilled him at 45 this was september 12th double lunged um he ran about 40 yards and stopped i ranged him at 40 again pulled back took a step to my left he picked me off and ran i did not get a second arrow in him but i didn't need to i want to talk about backup bows real quick so i shot him with my last year bow my verdicts uh, I had my VXR 28 here, but I failed, forgot to mention that um, when I moved my first spike camp, I wanted to back my fo- trailer up to my camp so I could load everything. And when I did that, my ratchet strap broke and it was downhill. And so my four-wheeler rolled backwards, busting open the gate of my, my uh, big aluminum trailer. And it rolled back through the gate into my camp and my bow was sitting on my 
I have those limb holders from Matthews, the engaged limbs. So my bow was sitting by my tent and my four-wheeler went right over my bow. It snapped the, uh, the sight right in half. And my bow, I took my VX, I took the sight off my Vertex and put it on my VXR and sighted it in. And I shot from 20 out to 100. And I noticed that when I was shooting from about 80 back, I was getting some really funky flight. So I knew something with my bow was wrong and I didn't feel confident. So I grabbed the sight, put it back on the Vertex. And I hadn't shot that bow since elk hunting last year, but it was still in tune. Same arrow weight, 454 grains total with the Grim Reaper. And the bow was still in tune because it's a Matthews, man. They stay in tune. I noticed that. And that's the main difference between my experience with Hoyts and Matthews is the Matthews were staying in tune. I wasn't having a mess with the timing every other month. Um, and I'm sure Hoyts fixed that. But they. It, long story short, my Vertex was my new shooter and my VXR backup bow was out of tune. So that's what I killed that Idaho bull with. I got cell phone service there. I couldn't believe it. I hadn't had cell service for over two, over two weeks, basically. So I text my buddy Tyler, who was hunting down there, and I said, hey, I don't know if you're done hunting for the morning, but I killed a bull. If you want to help me, great. And he sent me a text back and said, I'll be there in an hour. Drop me a pen. And he was there in an hour and a half. And when he showed up, it was hotter than hell, and I'd had the bull mostly broke down by then, and he helped me finish breaking it up. And he spent a lot of energy hiking in that five miles to get to me, and he was almost out of water, which at the time, I, you know, I didn't think too much of it. So we hiked quarters down to the bottom of the canyon, and we did two trips, and it was about 600 vertical feet. And then we hiked the meat straight uphill to a road that we could get the four-wheeler to. And so I killed that bull at noon. And we had him back to the four-wheeler and back to camp just after midnight. So about a 12-hour ordeal. And Tyler does CrossFit. Tyler is a paramedic firefighter. Tyler is six foot two. Tyler's hard to keep up with in the mountains. His stride length is insane. He's in phenomenal shape. But the next day, we slept in, had the meat hanging, and he didn't go hunting in the morning. And he said he didn't feel good. Uh, he bummed some Advil from my dad. And he drank about three gallons of water, ate a bunch of food, and rested all day. And that night, the 13th, I, I drove all the way over to Montana to hunt Montana again. And he stayed in camp. And I almost killed a 5x5 five five that night. I found a, a saddle where these elk were crossing. And I got in front of this five point and just got blown out by mule deer. Mule deer saw me and so they blew the elk out. So that was cool. And I made it back to camp and Tyler was not feeling good. The next day I woke up, drove back to Montana and hunted. And I was having to drive like 50 miles from base camp. So I knew that I was going to hang out until Tyler was done hunting because he just wasn't acting right. He, he was kind of like, I don't know. He, he wasn't alert. He was a little bit just, 
I don't know. I think he was dehydrated, and I think he was exhausted. And I think he got a little bit of heat stroke. So I, w- I knew he was leaving on the 17th. So I just wanted to be near him in case he got an elk so I could help him pack out. Same for my dad, who was also hunting Idaho. So I was doing these 50-mile one ways to hunt Montana, and I was coming back every night. Um, Tyler eventually, after two and a half days, and me thinking he should go to the doctor, came back to life and was able to hunt his last day with my dad. And so I hunted Montana. It was real smoky. The elk weren't talking. And when I got back, um, I ended up giving those guys a ride. They parked their four-wheelers and hiked 10 miles, and I picked them on the other side of the range. And then we packed up on the 17th, and we headed to Wyoming. So we got to Wyoming on the 18th. So by now I've hunted Montana probably probably put eight days in Montana and the rest in Idaho, killed one bull, and we got to a brand new unit in Wyoming I've never hunted. And so up to this point I've basically hunted all new country. It's really challenging as you guys know when you you're not hunting your old haunts. And I've hunted a lot of places, so I have a lot of honey holes in a lot of states. Um, but I felt like I really figured out Idaho where I was hunting really well. Uh, I filled up my truck four different times. I'd moved spike camp five times. I really covered some country and I learned it. And I decided I probably won't hunt that place in Idaho again. I just didn't like the hunting pressure. And I didn't, I just wasn't, dig- when those guys were chasing those elk on the pivot, uh, I didn't like that. I saw a cow die from bulls chasing her, uh, and I saw more hunters here than I've ever seen before. I just, I'll hunt less elk, less people all day, every day. So we were pretty excited to get to Wyoming because we thought they would be bugling pretty strong. And Wyoming was some of the most beautiful country I've hunted. Brand new unit, and I connected with my friend from Wyoming, Manny. He was a... He's a great buddy of mine, and he's done. He was my non-resident guide in Wyoming last year when I hunted the wilderness. But we weren't going to hunt wilderness this year. We were going to just kind of base camp, hunt from a truck, hike in. It didn't take us long to figure out we were smack dab in the middle of horse country where there was a lot of elk, but to get anywhere, you needed a horse or you had to hike in a spike or bivy hunt. So... We decided to spike camp in Wyoming. So the first night was a big, long scouting trip, hiking, driving roads, learning the roads, learning the access points, learning where the most hunters congregated. It's not that hard to figure that kind of stuff out. And we settled in on a ridge that was really far from all the roads. We hiked in the dark three miles, set up base camp. Manny brought his horse, carried a lot of my dad's gear. My dad's 64, so my dad got to hike in without a pack. Set up base camp, or a spike base camp, and we hunted that morning and got right into elk. And uh, it was raining pretty hard. It didn't turn to snow. Uh, But we spent three nights out of that spike camp, and we got into a few small herds, they were bugling till about nine o'clock and then they would shut up and they wouldn't start bugling again till dark. So evening hunts were hard 
It wasn't very glassable terrain. There was no hunting pressure, which I liked. But we were hearing gunshots nonstop because rifle mule deer was open. And that's the mistake I made. I should have got to Wyoming before the 15th, before rifle mule deer. Because these guys that hunt these giant mule deer with rifles all have horses and they hunt all high. And you hear, I say average 12 to 10, yeah, about 12 to 13 gunshots a day spread out throughout the day. All hours of the day. All mule deer getting shot at. And so I don't know about you, but I have experienced that elk don't like gunshots going off all the time. And so these elk were not very vocal. And we had that rain come in and then another front came in. And so from the 18th till the 27th, I can't think of one day where the wind wasn't gusting and the wind wasn't swirling and the clouds weren't rolling in. We never had a bluebird high pressure normal wind day where you could count on thermals in the morning and evenings. And so I spent the next basically the the 19th to the 27th educating every elk on what I smell like. Um, I got on really big bulls, like 330 to 340. Um, I passed on a 4x4, a 5x5. I passed on another 5x5. I never got an archery shot on a six-point. And I'm going to fast forward to the 27th. I hiked in five. So basically, if you were to look at my base map and the maps that I downloaded... In these units, I have a pin pretty much everywhere you could go. I was I was doing 15 miles a day. My cameraman Jake is the only guy I've ever had hunt with me and keep up and not complain. So shout out to you, Jake. I mean, I'm serious. I put you through the gauntlet. I hunt hard every day, no matter what. My motto is the only easy day was yesterday, and that's how I hunt. And I try to find places where there's not other hunters. And that was a chore there in Wyoming. It was very much a Utah, Minnesota, Illinois, New Jersey, Arizona. I saw every damn license plate in the United States. And uh, I'm okay with that. I just got to find places that people don't want to go. And that's hard to do when there's a horse trail in every direction. We were able to do that. We were able to spike camp. We were able to figure out where to hike in from. And so I found this basin where it was five miles in, five miles out. So that's 10 miles a day just to get there and get back to camp. The hike wasn't bad, so I didn't mind going all the way back out to base camp. I could do the five miles in 90 minutes both ways, uphill and downhill. It was very gradual. And I in this basin was about five different six points, five different herds. And I spent the 27th getting in on every one of those bulls. The 340 bull, the closest I got to him was 140. I think I got good footage of him. And at this point on the 27th, my cameraman had gone home. So I was solo filming with uh, the Solvid setup and my little Panasonic Handycam, my GoPro over the shoulder, and my iPhone. Uh, The DSLR Sony was left at camp. And on the 27th, I got in on that 340 bull at first light, followed the herd. He shut up super early, ended up finding some cows feeding within the first hour, snuck over to those cows. I'm not calling at all at this point. The elk are not responding to vocals. They're not bugling much on their own. And uh, 
that's par for the course, you know, in a lot of these places that hunting pressure is high. So I just bubble hunt and I find that I've killed more elk not calling than I have calling. And that's just a fact. So I got into these cows and I knew if I just stayed within 100 yards of them, I would see a bull. And sure enough, a four by four bull came right into the middle of the cows. He was all wallowed up and he started raking right in front of them to try to impress and by this time, a 4x4 four four was looking pretty good. I wanted to get two elk killed at least, and I wanted to have two dead elk in the freezer. So I started sneaking in on him, and I heard raking below me. I looked to my left. There's a 5x5 five five raking, and I knew these two were going to square off. And I was right in between the two with the wind going down, and I was like, this, this couldn't be any more perfect. The 5x5 five five got done raking first after about two minutes. And started walking towards the 4x4. Four four. And he's coming down this trail. And I'm going to probably get about a 20-yard shot, which I like those top pin shots. He makes it to 52. And I can shoot at 52, but I wanted to be really patient and get really good video and take a high, high percentage shot. And I feel the wind hit the back of my neck, which is weird because I'm in the shade and we're not even an hour past sunrise. The thermal should be going down for another hour. And the wind starts swirling, and I see him pick his head up and stop, and I knew I was kind of screwed. And he's standing there quartering two, and I just killed a bull quartering two, and I just didn't want to take this shot. So I sat there and waited, hoping that he would, you know, the rut would take over and he would ignore that he got a little sniff. Well, he didn't, and he eventually whirled and ran away. And the 4 by 4 saw that and ran away. And I was just like, damn. So I spent the rest of the day hiking up over a saddle into a whole new set of country, doing locator bugles, looking for sign, never got an answer. And it was cold. So I got a fire going. The wind was whipping, uh, still another front blowing. And so I backed out, went back to that basin, got a bull located, got close to him. Wind swirled, never saw him, and I was pretty frustrated, man. I didn't know if I was going to be able to kill an elk in Wyoming just because we just didn't have the right weather, and I can't control that. And if you're hunting elk in high wind days, number one, it's hard to hear bugles when the wind's whipping through aspens, but number two, it's hard to get in tight with elk when the wind swirls nonstop. There's really nothing you can do but back out and just glass elk and study observe don't educate them like I was doing. And that's, so I decided I was going to back out, but then I glassed a giant six point bedded by himself in a spot that I knew I could get to. So what I ended up doing was working my way over. I ended up getting right on this bull, probably 70 yards on the same level. Wind kind of going down, but kind of switching a little. And I did a full calling sequence. He never answered. And I knew he smelled me, but I side-heeled over to where he was bedded, and sure enough, he wasn't there. He was about a 326 point, and the footage is awesome. He's like your classic bull that's stiff and sore from fighting and rutting. I got him, I don't know, probably two minutes of footage of him standing up, and then when he goes to re-bed, it takes him like 30 seconds just to bed because he could hardly move his muscles. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but you can just tell he's really beat up from the rut. 
and uh, he didn't have any cows. Once I blew him out, I had about an hour left of daylight, and I just said, I'm hiking out. I'm going to go back to base camp, make a really big dinner, and I'm going to try to find somewhere on the map where it's north-facing timber, and I can count on thermals for maybe one hour in the morning, one hour in the dark, and that's what I got. And I checked the weather, and it wasn't supposed to clear until the 29th. So I was hiking out along the horse trail, and and I put my bow on my back, but in the back of my mind, I knew maybe, just maybe, I might catch an elk herd crossing this creek. Well, long story short, as I made it two miles, and the elk, I heard an elk bugle next to the creek, and I was like, no way. And I'm kind of in a canyon. So I hiked up off the trail and got on like the little bit of a, a bank, if you will. And I could hear a little bit better. I heard one more bugle and it was close. And I looked to my right and these elk are coming off the mountain and they're getting water in the creek I just walked by. I grabbed my bow off my backpack. I jumped back down on the horse trail. I go up 100 yards, and I see the cows getting water. And I know there's a bull with them, and at this point, I'm not going to be picky. And one of the cows kind of picks her head up and looks my way like she must have saw a little bit of movement, so I held still. And the rest of the cows saw that, and they, like, turned around 180 and started hiking out. And I was like, damn it, I blew it. But the lead cow, for whatever reason, got a little bit more water and continued crossing, heading up the other side. And eventually the rest of the herd came down, got water. And the last the last one to make it out was a bull. I ranged him at 52, quartering away. Shot was good. I saw my arrow, and I used lighted knocks, by the way, in Wyoming. Saw my arrow go right into behind the shoulder, quartering away. If anything, it was up a little too forward for that angle, but it was a good shot. And I watched the rest of the cows cross the creek and go up the hill, and my bull never came out. So I snuck up around the corner, and I saw him just standing there looking at me. And he, I pulled back, and I had to guess the range at 50 again. It looked at like about 50. I didn't have time to range. And I shot one more shot, and he whirled as I shot. And I double, not double lung, but I double rear quartered him, passed through. I saw my arrow go through the hind quarter, out the other hind quarter, and I saw my arrow like just sticking in the ground. And he ran up the horse trail about a hundred yards. I saw him. So I went over, grabbed my arrow. My arrow was covered in blood. Gra- uh, my other arrow was stuck in his opposite shoulder, and I didn't give him any time. I just followed the blood trail, which was a murder scene. It was an artery hit as well as a lung heart shot. The bull weighed 100 yards and piled up on the bank. And I was tagged out. So stoked. I didn't think I'd be able to kill one in Wyoming just due to the weather and the hunting pressure and for me not having a horse and me kicking my own ass. So long story short is I started breaking the bull down and I got all the neck meat off one side, the shoulder, the back strap, the hind quarter. And he was in a really shitty spot up against the snag. So I had to kind of, I should have probably pulled his guts out just to make him lighter. But I, I managed to flip him over, got my arrow out, 
Then I got the neck meat off. And I like to get the neck meat off first just because a lot of heat's there. And so I got the, the neck, shoulder, and I was just finishing up getting the back of the back strap off. And it wouldn't pop off. And so I put my hand down there and threw my blade under and cut. And I managed to put my goat knife. I had a 60XT surgical blade on the end. I managed to put that knife between my index and my thumb. Buried it all the way into my hand. And guys, it went into my hand like butter. And I was like, oh, crap. And I pulled it out. And I just started bleeding all over the place. And I knew immediately I was going to need stitches. And I knew I was going to lose a lot of blood. So I grabbed the game bag that I had set aside for that last hind quarter. And I just wrapped it as tight as I could. Being an EMT, I did have a really good first aid kit. I had clot stopper. I had an EpiPen. What I decided to do, and I made this decision fast, was, was like, I need to get off this mountain. So I left my backpack, my bow, and that last quarter on the carcass, and I just hauled ass out of there to my four-wheeler. I rode my four-wheeler to base camp, and my dad was asleep. It was about midnight, and I woke him up, and I said, Dad, I feel like I'm kind of going into shock a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to shit my pants, throw up, uh, the back of my head feels like it's 110 degrees and I'm sweating and I feel like I'm going to pass out. Can you please look at this cut and clean it out for me? So he got up, we boiled some hot water and let it cool off and kind of put that clean sterile water all on the wound to flush it out. And then he poured hydrogen peroxide an entire bottle into the wound and, um, I felt like I was going to pass out and I've seen some nasty shit as an EMT firefighter and I don't mind working on other people's shit, but man, I was, I could hardly stomach my own stuff. I don't know why. And admittedly, I just felt ill from the seeing all that stuff. So once he got it wrapped up, I literally just passed out. I think I ate like three bites of a burger that my dad made for me, drank a little bit of water I took two Advil and I just went to bed. I woke up the next morning and it was very painful, but I just kept it wrapped. Manny showed up with his horses and we just, I wanted to get that elk meat out before I went to the nearest town to get stitches. So we hiked in, got the horses right to the bull. My friend Manny really saved my ass. He helped get that elk quarter off with my dad. All the meat looked good. No animals, no bears got on my carcass. We got the meat on the horse and the rack. We hiked it out. We got the meat hanging at camp. And then I got in my truck and drove straight to town to the nearest urgent care. The doc there was really awesome. He said, uh, you know, you're supposed to get stitches within five, six hours of a cut. You might need to go see a hand surgeon to make sure you didn't cut any tendons or, you know, any nerves, and I probably can't stitch it. There's probably dirt in it. And I said, here's the deal, bro. I'm going to shoot you straight, doc. I My wife cut her hand two years ago when I was in Nevada elk hunting, and we didn't have health insurance, and she had to go to a hand surgeon, hand surgery, and I paid cash for that, and I paid $20,000, and my nest egg got depleted pretty fast. 
I'm not going to any, I'm not going to a hand surgeon. I need you to stitch this up right now. My dad poured all the hydrogen peroxide you could ever dream. I wasn't wearing gloves. So there's no, there's no gloves inside my wound. There's no dirt. He's like, all right, I'll call the hand surgeon. If he says it's okay, I'll stitch it up. He called the hand surgeon, came back. He said, all right, I'm going to open up your wound. It's going to hurt, but I'm going to look for anything like debris, dirt. And if it's okay, I'll stitch it. So long story short is he put two stitches deep inside, you know, two inches deep. And then he put four stitches on top, wrapped it, wrote me a script for an antibiotic. He flushed the shit out of it. He used uh, lidocaine, which didn't work that great. I felt a lot of pain. And then I also went through the same hot flash, tunnel vision, cold sweats, thought I was going to crap my pants or puke while him and the nurse worked on it. And they kept asking me, are you going to be okay? Do you need to lay down? I was like, I just need this fixed. Bottom line is they fixed it, stitched it. I got a script for pain meds, but I cannot go hunt Montana right now because where I put my hand on the riser when I pull back a bow is right where these stitches are. And so I got to let this heal for about six more days as I'm driving home. And hopefully I can shoot a bow and salvage the last week of uh, Montana's archery season. I'm not the guy that's going to pick up a rifle and go hunt elk rifle. I got nothing against it. It's just not what I do. I'm a bow hunter. I'll pick up a rifle for wolves. Uh, so I got my hand wrapped. It's still pretty swollen, but that doctor did a bang up job. I got back to camp and loaded everything up, stayed the night. My dad's going to hunt Wyoming with my buddy Manny for the next two days and I'm driving home. So right now I'm headed almost to where my meat, I had dropped my first bull off at a butcher. <clears throat> that butcher said he couldn't get to it till the end of September. And I said that would be perfect. So right now, as it stands, I'm about a half an hour away from picking up my first bull meat cut and wrapped. I like to butcher my own meat, to be honest with you guys. I don't like anyone else touching it, but I'm going to get that meat. And then I got the meat from my uh, Wyoming bull in the back of my trailer right now. It got down to 26 last night. So my meat got to hang and get cold and I'm hauling ass home to see my kids and my wife, which I haven't seen for over 30 days. Uh, I'm going to take a big, long 10-day break from hunting, get healed up, maybe answer one of my 500 emails. Uh, hopefully, you guys have been listening to the podcast that I bankrolled before hunting season, and uh, we'll see what's going on, man. My goal is to continue to do Elk Shape as my living, to basically monetize the podcast through sponsorships and sponsorships through hunting and doing Elk Shape camps. And I learned so much this year about how to help other elk hunters. I hunted three new units or three new areas and states I've hunted before, but I'd never went to anywhere that I'd been before. And it really helped me as an educator of elk hunting on helping people really get, be the 10 percenter that can kill an elk in states where, you know, you've never been or you can't scout, it's too far away and the hunting pressure is insane and what tactics to use and how to change your tactics on the fly. And most importantly, there's no days where I didn't get into elk. I, I always feel like I can figure out what elk are going to do. And that's what I want to teach people at Elk Shape Camp. My fitness is superior 
to what it was last year. And last year I felt limitless. I, I don't know how many miles I hiked in 30 days, but I can say there's no days where I did less than 10. So you do the math on that elevation gain. I changed spike camps, almost double digit times, filled my truck up with gas so many times and covered so much country. And I got into so many elk and I feel so blessed to have so much experience at elk hunting. And the beautiful thing is I'm still learning just like you guys. And I just, I love everything about elk hunting. I love the challenge. I love what it takes. I love how hard it is to get one. I love how hard it is to get one out. And I love just all the delayed gratification. I feel so fortunate to be an elk hunter. So blessed. God is so good. I saw such beautiful country, amazing landscapes, every sunrise, sunset, you could imagine. Just spoiled rotten. Shout out to my wife. Take care of two kids working, you know, just supporting me. And she understands this is elk hunting is a business for me. And knowing Dan Staten and my personality, I will never, ever let elk hunting business get in the way of me enjoying my passion. Um, I took a long break from social media. I got to tell you guys, that was probably my one of my favorite parts. Um, as far as best elk tactics, Dirk Durham, I hope you're not listening. Use your Phelps bugle tube to locate elk. Shut your mouth. Let the elk do their own talking. Stay inside the window of 100, 100 to 200 yards of cows. Don't get busted by cows. Stay close to them. Keep the wind in your face and you will kill an elk. The whole calling thing does work, but I'm here to tell you these elk come in looking for you. They come in on full alert. They come in facing you. I don't like frontals. I've killed, I think, six bulls frontal. I don't like them. I like broadside shots where elk are not they're feeding or they're raking or they're bugling at another bull. They're not looking at you. They can't move when your arrow's on its way to them. Uh, cows are the biggest obstacle when you're hunting elk. Even if you shoot raghorn bulls, like I killed two rags this year, <clears throat> you have to watch out for cows and other elk. They will see movement. You have to be calculated. You have to have your head on a swivel. Elk can be in any direction at any time, and all it takes is one to see you. Elk totally look at other elk and see what they're doing, and they feed off that body language. Gear. I switched to Kafaru this year. I used the hoodlum day in and day out. I left the striker behind. The hoodlum is the greatest backpack for elk hunting, whether you want a bivy, whether you want a day hunt. Uh, I could put my camp bag, which is also from Kafaru, inside my hoodlum and drop it off wherever I wanted to spike. I could always carry all the necessary gear. I could take the bag away from the frame. It's got a meat shelf for packing out elk, which I've packed out two bulls that way. And uh, I actually, the horse packed out the second bull. That was a lie. The hoodlum pack was probably the greatest pack I've ever used. What makes a difference from, say, XO? XO is just a little lighter and a little less stout, a little less, I don't know. I can customize any part of a Kufaru backpack because there's a loop. I can put K-clips. I can put anything I want anywhere. So I really customize my hoodlum to hold my bow on it when I'm hiking out so I can use trekking poles. 
Trekking poles are the number two thing that I, I honestly, guys, I use trekking poles day in and day out, always on the way in, always on the way out. It was just the only way I was going to be able to stay sustainable physically was to use trekking poles. And sometimes I would even put one trekking pole away, have a bow in my hand and a trekker in my other trekking poles. And I use these Lakeys that I bought from uh, Kenetrek, actually. They're awesome. The number three is my Kenetrek. The mountain guide boots, they're higher than most. They're stiff. They're rigid. These are some of the greatest boots I've ever worn. And I've been with Kenetrek since 2010. And... I'm here to tell you, boots are everything. There were a few days I wore my Sitka Gators, and then a few days I didn't. And I would say that the boots are everything. I never got a hot spot. I bring three pairs of boots. I had to cross the river one day, and I didn't want to take my boots off. So I did, and I was done hunting, crossed the river, made it back to camp, put those in a boot dryer, always bring a boot dryer with you, run the generator, so the boots were huge. Uh, my Sitka clothing system gear, I think the mountain pant is probably my favorite go-to. And the core lightweight hoodie. You'll always find me wearing those two tops that are that top and that bottom. Just a good all-around system. I had a puffy, a Kelvin puffy that I always was in my pack. And I had my Cloudburst rain gear, which I wore a lot when I got rained and snowed on. And so that's as far as gear goes. Uh, one thing I did new this year was instead of carrying iodine tabs and some sort of Sawyer filter, I do have a Sawyer filter system. It's in my spike camp bag. That's why I like to spike next to water. But I was using just a SteriPen that I got off Amazon for like a hundred bucks that runs on lithium batteries that you can recharge or just put in AAAs. And that was, that was huge for me. It's just a Nalgene. I could carry a couple bottles of water in my pack and then an Nalgene and I customized that hoodlum so I had a Nalgene holder on one side and I had a a big pocket to hold my Solvid camera and Panasonic so I could put that head camera on when it was go time. I could take it off in between downtime and not have a camera on my head and uh, that was awesome. And then my camera guy, Jake Webb, I've just never seen anyone keep up. And, and hunt with me that long. We got awesome drone footage, action camera footage, DSLR, long lens, short lens. Um, I hope we're going to be able to put together some really good YouTube stuff and showcase what I've been talking about and show you our adventures. I just, I really enjoyed that. Food-wise, I learned real quick what food I would eat the fastest and which food sat in my food bag. Sorry, Costco, Kirkland protein bars, but like, I could hardly stomach those. Those never sounded good. Uh, my fruit leathers always sounded good. Uh, I mean, like, those were always go-to. I had Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which is new to me. I usually don't pack candy, but I always put one or two of those in there. A company out of Colorado, Steamboat Springs, they make these little waffle uh, treats that are all carbs. I Eight honey stingers. I ate those. I, I probably have two or three of those in my pack, day pack every day. I love those. And they also make these little energy chews that have caffeine in them. Uh, those were amazing. The Robert Irvin protein bars, you can get them from Costco. Those were layered baked protein bars. Those were always delicious. I'd always eat those. 
I had a couple of keto bars that were really delicious. My favorite thing was my trail mix, my homemade trail mix. I had unsalted natural like mixed nuts from Costco, about a cup. And then I'd put a cup of M&M peanut in there. And that was about 700 calories. And I would eat the crap out of those as well. And then stowaway gourmet freeze-dried meals, honestly, not fair. Like peak refuel is really good. And these are even better. And I have a discount code ELK10 that'll get you 10% off those. So next time you go to buy freeze-dried, please buy a whole bunch of those from Stowaway. They're out of Oregon. Uh, no Mountain Houses this year. Mountain House is just dog shit nutrition. Um, I had a couple of peak refuels left from last year, but I'm working with Stowaway Gourmet. And uh, I, I don't even know, man. Like the shrimp, the buffalo. See, they don't have a bunch of their food shipped in. They have chefs come in and make the stuff right then and there, and then they freeze dry it. So I think they're going to be gaining popularity as people try them. They're worth it. They're they're definitely use the discount code Elk Ten, phenomenal. Uh, my Vortex Bino harness is what I used. I didn't use the ADAC. I didn't use uh, Sikas very much. I didn't use uh, Alaska Guide Creations Marosupio or whatever. I I'm interested in trying theirs. I don't have theirs yet. I'm gonna check those out for next year. But the the Bino harness that comes with UHDs, you can't buy this Bino harness separate. Those fit the UHDs perfectly. They don't slip down. They're right up on your chest, right by your, you know, your breastbone, your sternum. Um, and then I use the ADAC, ADAC rangefinder holder. I just kind of jimmy rigged it with paracord to my bino harness. I used the uh, Vortex's new Razor 4000 rangefinder. It's got to the decimal. If you're under 200 yards, angle compensation, really good glass in it, and just unbelievable glass for the money. And that's what I, I always have binos. Even if I'm in like bedding areas, I can glass 70, 80 yards out and see if I can find an elk bedded. So binos are a must. Uh, when I get back, I'm going to get my VXR doped in again and switch back to that. That bow's just too deadly. That's what I killed my antelope with. But the Verdix, the Verdix was the backup bow. I didn't even bring my 31 and a half as a backup bow. Uh, I shoot the Verdix really well and the 28 really well. And for whatever reason, the 31 and a half, I just don't shoot as well, uh, which doesn't make sense because it's longer axle to axle. You think I'd be able to less torque it, but I get more left and rights on that one. I don't know what it is about being short, but I just shoot short bows better. It is what it is. Uh, I use that Easton Axis match grade. 340 spine with the Grim Reaper Micro Hades 3 blade. That is my go-to fixed blade for life. Uh, I didn't use lighted knocks, obviously, in Idaho. I wish they would switch that rule because, man, you can really see where your arrow goes. I uh, used my white veins, my elk-shaped veins. They're AAE Max Stealth. Uh, they're max helical to the left. And uh, I don't have a problem with broadheads coming loose at all. And that arrow has just crushed through every elk I've shot. As far as release aids go, you guys are going to like this. In Montana, on the 336 point, 65-yard shot, using a Carter two-simple thumb barrel, I shoot it like back tension. I pulled back on that bull at 65 broadside, and 
on camera. I hold for 11 seconds and I couldn't get the shot to break. And I, the shot, I'm not going to force a shot. And it cost me that, sh- that bowl. When that happened, I went back to camp, grabbed my old school Scott single hook XT, shot my bow at camp. I didn't have to adjust my peep for whatever reason on that verdicts. I don't. I can shoot a handheld and a hook with a buckle the same. On a VXR, for whatever reason, the string angle, if I switch between a handheld and a single hook buckle, I'd have to move my peep back up or back down. So I switched to basically a trigger hook and I shoot I shoot that verdicts better with that. And so that's why I switched. And I got really good surprise releases on both the Idaho and the Wyoming bull. So you little nerds out there, as far as sleeping bags go, uh, I had a climate zero degree bag for base camp. It weighs three pounds, so it's not going in my spike bag. And then I had a Western Mountaineering 10 degree bag that was in my spike camp. Both bags, phenomenal. Dan didn't get cold this year. It was a miracle. And I just put a bivy sack over my 10 degree bag in the backcountry, And it got down to tw- in the 20s a few nights and I didn't get cold. I uh, used the jet boil this year. And, you know, people talk shit about jet boil, but I like not having to have a lighter. I like how fast my water boils. I don't burn a lot of gas. And I can boil water for my freeze-dried meals and my coffee in the morning. Uh, water system was a platypus with a Sawyer. Uh, you got to be careful if it gets below freezing on those. Um, and I just have a dirty bag and a big clean bag that holds basically four and a half liters of water. And so I just filter water while I'm sleeping, wake up in the morning, fill my Nalgene's, and I'm gone. If I run out of water, I just find a creek, use the, you know, SteriPen. Great system. Going to stick with that. Uh, I use that climate pad for, um, I think it's called the V-Static. And climate, I do have a discount code, I think, still. It's elk shape 20 Save 20% on climate. Get that pad. That is an awesome pad. It breaks down to absolutely nothing. Easy to inflate. And man, it's gold. It's pure gold. As far as the tents go, in the beginning of the season, I was sleeping base camp in my climate two-man tent. I think it's called the Maxfield. Great tent, um, but to save as much weight as possible and to have a stove, I was using the Cimarron from Seek Outside, and mine's a four-person, and it can really sleep three with gear. And it's got that lightweight stove, and we took it in the backcountry, and we used the stove, which saved our bacon because we definitely hunted in the rain and were able to dry out all our gear and not have to come off the mountain and stay warm at night. And so that was clutch. My dad was up there, 64, base hunting out of a spike camp, sleeping in the tent with me. And then uh, after it rained, Jake left his, the camera guy left his tent and slept in our tent because we had a stove and was able to dry all his gear out. So that was clutch. Uh, as far as what else is gear goes? Yeah, that's probably it as far as I want to talk to. I mean, bring as much socks and underwear as possible. For whatever reason, my feet sweat like a mofo. So I was packing an extra pair of socks and always taking my boots off midday and swapping out socks. I think that kept, kept my feet pretty healthy and not blistery. No hot spots, nothing like that. And yeah, 
So that's the, the recap so far. I think we got a little bit of elk season left. I got a Montana deer tag, an antelope tag. I got a South Dakota deer tag. I got some hunt, a, a whitetail tag here in Washington. Uh, all tagged out in Idaho. I'm already thinking about 2021. I don't know, guys. I want to go back to Montana. I don't know if I'm going to pay the non-resident special $1,300 tag in Wyoming. Uh, due to the hunting pressure, I just don't think it's worth it. I don't like the rifle mule deer stuff going on simultaneously. We're going to use my dad's horses next year wherever we go for sure. We, My dad and Manny used his horses, which saved his ass. He's 64. And, you know, his knees actually hurt from riding downhill on horses. So if you hunt with horses, try walking your horses out downhill. Uh, we packed my bull out with horses. That was awesome. Uh, I've hunted off horses probably three or four times in my life. They're awesome, but they are a chore. Things can't, you know, they require a lot of work. But there's, I don't know, I'm eyeing Montana for 2021. I might go back to North Idaho because I love hunting that shitty brush and dodging wolves and other hunters. Um, I got a report from my friends that were using my cabin to hunt out of. And, um, well, they missed a wolf at 20 yards with a pistol. Then they saw seven more wolves and they haven't killed an elk yet. So sounds like it's the same story there, which is why I kind of left there. But if I do go back, that'll require some scouting. Uh, would love to get a landowner tag in New Mexico, but if I'm a blue collar guy, so probably stick to generals friends. And, uh, I'll talk to Timmy, my guy who my producer for our YouTube channel, he hunted 18 days in Oregon. I want to get the scoop from him. He was in Eastern Oregon and uh, find out what he experienced. Uh, I got a Washington elk tag that opens in a few days. I don't think I'm going to hunt there. Just, uh, that's usually what happens year after year is I get a Washington tag as part of a sportsman's package and I never end up hunting it because that hunting pressure is the, is the, takes the cake, if you will. But, uh, looking forward to talking to the Elk Collective guys. I know Dirk got a bull in New Mexico. John got a bull in New Mexico. Jason got a bull in New Mexico. I don't know if John got one in, uh, Montana. I know Dirk, I don't think Dirk got one in Idaho. But I think he right now, as we're recording, he's headed over to Montana. And so we'll check in with him and we'll keep pumping out awesome stuff on the Elk Collective. All our content will go there. All our knowledge bombs will go there. And it's good. Everybody hunted somewhere new this year so we can share insight on new places. I can't wait to find out how many of my elk-shaped campers got their first elk this year. I've already looked at my phone a little and there's going to be several. So... Elk Shape Camps 2020 and 2021, I think. I can't even remember off the top of my head, but we're going to, I'm going to Lancaster Archery in Pennsylvania. Going to Tennessee uh, at, uh, I can't remember the name of the shop. I'll get back to you on that. We're going to Utah. We're going to Idaho in Boise. Uh, we're going to go to probably Arizona and possibly Reno. Looking forward to the Utah one. We're doing that at the Baku Archery Center. And, uh, yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, can't wait to hear your guys' stuff. Uh, we'll do some pl sponsor plugs after this here, pay some bills. I appreciate you all. Keep working hard. If you weren't successful in 2020, 
may that make that fuel the rest of your preparation going forward. Make that determine the decisions you make. Make difficult decisions in the name of better elk hunting. Get your finances straight. Keep your family life dialed. Shoot your bow year-round. Keep scouting and uh, do your research, your due diligence. Keep tuning into this podcast. I'll keep bringing you good stuff. I I, I really just appreciate you guys. And uh, I'm almost to where I'm going to pick up my elk meat at the butcher. So I'm signing off. Have a great week. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, guys. Well, when I was going through gear, I forgot to mention something. There's two pieces that I didn't mention that are really important if you're filming or using your phone a lot for mapping is uh, I have a Goal Zero Nomad. This thing is like a hundred bucks off Amazon, super lightweight, and I just put it out in the sun, charge up my Dark Energy Poseidon and get that thing full. And with that full Poseidon, I can take my GoPro from zero to a hundred, my DSLR, and my iPhone and my Panasonic, I can basically charge everything. And so it does take most of the day with good sun to get that dark energy full. But man, once it's full, I can plug everything in while I'm sleeping. And uh, that's one thing I forgot to mention. Hashtag not sponsored, uh, 99 bucks. Um, I'll put a link in the show to that goal zero. So if you are interested in that thing, I'll put uh, a link so you can check that out. So uh, as far as partners, reading some ads i wanted to thank vortex once again discount code elk shape 20 percent off apparel you guys are awesome baku e-bikes if you are going to utilize the e-bike make sure you're legal make sure you're not that guy i love my e-bike and it's not fair i totally get it but if they're getting popular so if you want one take 400 off the retail price use the discount code elk shape 400 you can buy them online and it's no problem I'm going to drop a link in the show notes to Sika Gear where I basically, I'm going to put a link to their pants. I think everyone should try their mountain pants. Um, they just were, I mean, they make the Ascent, the Apex, the Timberline, the Traverse pants. All those are good, but the mountain pant is my favorite. And I know people are always um, looking to upgrade gear. So if your pants failed you, you like knee pads, you like big pockets, you like a nice tight fit, check out the mountain pant. I'll leave a link in the show notes to check out wilderness athlete, huge, huge fans of the hydrate recover. I probably had two scoops of hydrate recover every day and it is a difference maker. You can get 30% off your first purchase by using the discount code elk shape 30. Wilderness athlete is a huge partner at our elk shape camps. Thank you guys for all that you do. Lakewood products makes bow cases that are badass. And affordable, you can use the discount code ELKSHAPE2020 to save 10%. I mentioned this on the podcast, but climate sleep systems, sleeping bags, pillows, pads, tents, ELKSHAPE20 will get you 20% off. Black Ovis, discount code is 20% off, although I've heard that they might it might be knocked down to 15. I'll have to get a hold of Black Ovis. And some items are not available for discount online. You have to actually call. So like if you wanted to get some sort of fancy backpack or get, higher end stuff, you have to make a phone call to Black Ovis, tell me you're an Elk Shape podcast listener and you want the discount and push them for 20 
That's what I would do. Uh, Northwest Retention Systems, that's a chest strap. I use the Scout to hold my Glock and my 44 mag, and it fits right underneath my vinyl harness. Uh, a lot of people want to know where I got that, so check out Northwest Retention Systems and use the discount code ELKSHAPE. You will not be charged shipping and handling. Otherwise, you will. Crossover Symmetry for the shoulder health, discount code ELKSHAPE20 will get you 20% off. I appreciate all that you guys do for the ELKSHAPE community. We have six camps that are live, ready to go if you want to register. And I will tell you right now that we're going to try to do maybe seven or eight, but uh, I don't know. We'll see with everything going on. Um, I'm just going to run down the camps. We have Texas. uh, That's going to be in February. Then we go right into Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Nashville, Tennessee, Boise, Idaho, Denver, Colorado, Ogden, Utah, and possibly Arizona or Reno, Nevada. We'll see. But there's six camps right now. You can register. The early bird registration pricing is on there now. That'll expire December 31st, and then it'll go up 100 bucks. $399 will get you to Elk Shape Camp, and I will make sure that it's a life-changing experience. That, I promise. Appreciate you guys' support. You have a lot of options on podcast. Thanks for listening to this one, and we will catch you on the next one. Remember, separation is in the preparation.